What's good, Internet? It's the Harvest, the Colin Atrophy, and I am very happy to welcome you to episode number 45 of Life Harvester Radio. Uh, the guest this month is Marissa Chavez of Official Bootleg uh, T-Shirts, my friend from Austin, Texas, and um, it's a great conversation. Marissa is such a captivating speaker uh, and is really, she's got a great accent. She um, is really smart and insightful. She is not afraid to talk about some pretty serious shit in her life. And uh, I just think, I think this is a, I say it every week or every month or whatever, you know, but I, I also, I don't interview people I don't think are great. I think this is a really good one. I think that um, the Life Harvest listeners are going to get something out of this. And um, just a heads up, there's like a little bit of a lag in the audio. We did this over the phone um, using like some free app and there's like a little bit of a lag where it seems like a couple times it seems like maybe my side of the audio got pushed a little ahead and um i like laugh before marissa says a joke or like seems like i'm interrupting her and it's just hard to hear like i don't care that you think i'm interrupting her it's just hard to hear and just please bear with it it's not that bad it's not that long and the interview's really good okay i love you bye Are you born in Austin? Um, I'm. I wasn't. I was born in East LA, um, but my family on both sides is from Texas, um, and we moved back. We moved to tech back to Texas when I was two, um, and then I we had to kind of flee, and we lived in Northern Virginia from the age of eight to about fifteen. So since 15 and onward, we've been back in Austin. Um, so I feel like I grew up here because teenage years are probably most formative. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm from Austin. Do you, what do you mean you had to flee? So my, my family life was pretty dysfunctional. Um, and... As a child, I never realized to what extent it was chaotic because uh, it felt so normal to me, just always being in it. Um, and we moved around quite a lot. Um, my So my mother's handicapped. She got polio when she was two, and she's always been in a wheelchair. Um my father was an alcoholic and super abusive and he committed suicide when I was four. Wait. So we lived with my grandmother. Um, and then I had a alcoholic uncle that lived in a van and he lived in a van in front of our house and would get drunk and like come kick the front door in and, uh, just be kind of crazy. Um, so 
my and my grandmother wouldn't really do much about it. She didn't want him to go to jail. She didn't want him to face any like legal ramifications for you know kicking in the door and threatening to kill us or whatever. So my mom just took us out of the situation and moved to Northern Virginia. Wow. Um, and she, she had met a man that was, um, he was an engineer and he was very straight laced. And so we moved to Virginia with him. And, um, I think it was mainly just that he was everything that my father and my family wasn't. And so my mom wanted some sort of stability for my brother and I. Um, so we went to Northern Virginia and lived on a mountain. Um, and that relationship fell apart and we ended up being homeless and kind of moved around a bit. Um, it's, it's hard for me to really even remember like a timeline for all of that. Um, but we lived in Virginia until I was 15. Um, and that's when I was probably 12 or 13 is when I first started kind of being bad and getting involved, uh, with punk and drugs and, running away and skipping school and things like that. Um, I don't even remember what your initial question was, <laughs> why we moved. Yeah, yeah that's okay. Um, yeah. What, what part of Virginia were you in? You're up in the mountains. We lived in, yeah. In Winchester, um, which is in, it's in the Shenandoah Valley, Northern Virginia. Um, maybe about, an hour outside of DC. Oh, wow. Okay. So what's the, like, is it the like DC punk scene that you're getting into at 13? Like where, what is the sort of vibe of the, that world? Um, it was definitely DC. Um, we would, I always had older friends. So when I was like 12 and 13, my friends were 16 or 17 and so there would always be somebody with a car mm-hmm. and we would go to DC, not necessarily even for shows, but just to go and see the city because we wouldn't ever really have money to go to buy records or money to go to shows. We would just kind of go and wander around the city. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and so like in we we went definitely went to DC a lot. Um though I can't like the shows that I remember going to, like my first show that I went to was Reverend Horton oh, Heat. No. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh. And I know, I know. And it was uh I was probably fourteen and my boyfriend at the time was 19. Um, and the reason that I thought he was so cool is because he had a Nova with vanity license plates that read 
Sam Hain. Oh, wow. And so in Winchester, he he was like, like to my 14-year-old mind, he was the coolest guy in town. Yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, he, he took me to see Reverend Horton Heat. Um, and now it feels so cringy. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're terrible, but I, I owned a Reverend Horton Heat record as a, as a youngster. It's like the nineties was a weird time. Yeah. You know, like they're, they're like, because there wasn't the internet, I feel like there was just like, you just get into stuff in like, um, cause it's next to something you like, or cause like you heard of, you know what I mean? Or something that, especially when you're that young, it's like this person I think looks cool, likes this thing. I'm going to see what it's all about or whatever. Yeah. I mean, and, and that just in a small town, there wasn't really a lot of like punk kids. Right. So even if you weren't like, full on punk even you know maybe you just like were a skater kid and listened to metallica like you would still hang out with this with the punks because there was like 15 of us was there like a spot like a like a public outdoor spot that kids would go gather at um it was a sewer like a Uh sewer ditch um so we would go and like you know just drink mad dog and skate and then go explore the sewer tunnels. Yeah. I mean, that sounds so fucking magical for like a a little kid. That sounds amazing. Yeah. And still to this day, I'm just like, Oh, I just want to go kind of like lurk around a drain ditch and go, you know, under a hobo bridge. Yeah. And it's, it's still just kind of, a calming thing for me. Yeah. I mean, that makes so much sense. And what's the, like when you're like, when you say you were started running away, like where are you running away to like your older boyfriend's house or like your older friend's houses or what's the, what is, what does that look like? Um, yeah, I would go, I would go stay with my older boyfriend. Um, and so I definitely remember times that my mom would drive to his house and send my older brother to come get me. And they would have like my boyfriend be like, no, she's not here. And my brother being like, yeah, I know she is just send her out. Let's do this. And so I would just go home and my mom never like called the cops or she just kind of like, let me come and go. Um, Sometimes I would go to the city um, one time when I was maybe 14, my mom had taken me to the Smithsonian, um, to the art museums in DC as a special treat. And it was my mother and her trans friend, Zathira, which now, like in hindsight, like the fact that my mom's only friend in Winchester, Virginia was a trans woman in 1994 is kind of wild to me. Um, And my mom and Zathira had started a chapter of national organization for women 
um, in Winchester, Virginia. And there was like, we would have meetings and there was literally like five people there. Um, but either way, yeah, my mom and Zathira had taken me to the art museum as a treat. And then I just met some guys smoking. I was outside smoking a cigarette and I met some guys and just went off with them. And they were from Baltimore and I just went with them to Baltimore and stayed for a month or so. Um, and some like different kind of like punk squat type houses where uh, I was very much out of my element and it was my first time really having firsthand experience with like a legit heroin addict and um, just like being out on the streets alone and kind of figuring out how to panhandle and how to like dumpster dive yeah. or whatever. Were you using drugs at this point? Um, when, yeah. Um, I was definitely smoking weed and drinking and doing acid. Um, and I had very much like romanticized harder mm -hmm. drugs um but i don't know that i was like necessarily doing them a lot i think i i was just kind of always hoping they were around because i thought it was cool yeah oh i relate to that um and so like you know, this is like way before cell phones or whatever. So like when you just bounce with these guys to Baltimore from the Smithsonian one day, how long is it before you let your mom know that like you're still alive? Um, I don't think I ever called my mom Whoa. that time. And I had called some of my friends to have them tell my mom that I was okay. But I knew that if I called my mom and was like, oh, I'm just at this house in Baltimore with some random guys, that I, I knew that she would get the police involved right. at that point and, like, have them come get me. Because I was 14 yeah. or 15. Um, but my mom actually made, like, missing oh signs. Oh, God. And I... I've, I recently found one when I was like digging through a box of stuff at her house. Um, and it was just, it made me feel so horrible. <laughs> sure. I mean, it's like, you got to accept the person you were, even when you were doing horrible stuff, especially as a teen. But like, that's got to be a lot to contend with, especially because you and your mom seem really close now. Yeah, we are. And, and I feel like we always have been pretty close um and had a, a pretty honest and open relationship um i can't recall ever like really having to hide anything from her um like even all my drug use i've always been pretty open about it with everyone in my life 
And I think a lot of that is just from my, my mom raising me to not really have much, uh, like I'm not ashamed of however I am at the time, even if I know it's not like the best way to be. I'm like, well, I can at least be open about being a total mess right now. That's incredible. Um, yeah. And, and she's just, she's very, she's very accepting of things. Um, and I, at the time I never realized it cause it was the only example that I had. And I thought everyone had that same relationship with their, their family. But now I see, uh, she's, my mom made me into the person that I am today. And just by her, um, her openness. And she's also very vocal about all of her beliefs. Yeah. And it seems like her beliefs are, are pretty cool. If she's like starting a now chapter in, uh, Winchester, Virginia in the mid nineties. Exactly. You know, and I, I think, um, just growing up in a wheelchair and kind of always being, um, feeling separate from society and feeling very isolated, um, and not really ever having many friends because she spent so much time in the hospital and um, just living with a disability. I think all of that made her realize like she can just say and do whatever the, whatever she wants. Yeah. Cause she's ready. Like she's already a weirdo and a freak. Yeah. And so I think having her as my mother, I, I think I never really had another option than to be punk. <laughs> wow. Um, and so why do you go to Texas at 15? Um, well, because my, my family's from Texas. Um, my mom always wanted to come back. Um, but kind of the catalyst was, um, so my mom had retired on disability and she would just kind of, her house was just the party house. People would run away from home and come stay at our house and she would buy beer for everyone. And it was just kind of a crazy time. And we had, uh, Oh gosh, it's, it's kind of an, a, a bit of an involved story and it's, a, it seems pretty wild, but so I had a friend, Mike, who we were in a punk band with as, as young teenagers. Let's pause for a second. And what was your punk band called as young teenagers? Okay. Oh, I, it's so embarrassing. Max Hardcore and the Teenage Punk <laughs> Cool. And what's the, it, uh-huh. like, uh, was it like, a, <laughs> like, kind of, like, um, like, skunk, like, anti-scene it was kind definitely, of stuff yeah. or like yeah, yeah okay what did you do in the band um i was i was definitely obsessed with Gigi allen for a 
a large portion of my teenage years. Um, and I just, I thought, because it was just so extreme. Yeah. And I, I wanted to be the most extreme. Yeah, I mean, I get that. Um, and also just, it's, I've always kind of like, not really wanted to, um, follow, I've just never really wanted to be like a girly Mm -hmm. girl. Um, and so in my mind, like, okay, you're going to be like gross shock factor with everything you do. Um, so that was kind of, it was all just trying to shock. Um, so yeah, we had a shitty, a shitty little teenage band, um, and Mike's, I can't, it's, it's such a, it's such a white trash story. So Mike's mom's boyfriend, his name was Kenny Russell, and he was a redneck from Kentucky. And my friend's mom, her name was Wanda. She kicked Kenny Russell out, and he moved in with my mom. And was my mom's, like, live-in boyfriend for a while. And then my mom got tired of him, so she kicked him out, and he went back to Wanda. And my mom was dropping us off one day and Kenny had like asked her to take him to get a six pack. And they just like went off and got drunk and they were, they were, went to the park and were drinking. And the longer they were away, the more angry Wanda, my friend's mom became So she went and got us an eight ball of Coke and a bottle of whiskey. Um, And we, so we did that. And hours later, my mom and Kenny come back and they get into a fight. And Kenny like uh, assaults my mom. And we were all pretty wasted and my brother unloads a pistol on Kenny. Um, and then we had to kind of, this story, I, I'm trying to like figure out how to condense the story because it's so, there's yeah. so much information for any of it to really make any sense. And so I'm kind of struggling on how to give like an edited version. But basically my brother fired a gun at this guy that had assaulted my mom and then we ran and we the cops pulled us over and it was basically like well we'll we'll charge if you my mom they were going to charge my brother with like firing a firearm in city limits and um maybe even like attempted I don't even think it was like an attempted murder type thing but 
it was definitely some felony gun charges on my brother who was 16 at the time. And the cops in Winchester and my mom came to an agreement that if we moved back to Texas, they would drop Whoa. the charges. Um, so we just rented a U-Haul and filled it up and we moved a week later. Whoa. That is some, I have a friend whose brother who like grew up on a, on a mountain outside a Southern town and his brother stabbed someone. Um, when he was, he stabbed this like frat boy that had, um, was bragging at a party about beating up homeless guy. And um, the cops told him that if he just stayed on the mountain for two years, they would just make, like, it would just disappear. Like, I think that's, like, a fairly common uh, rural form of justice is just, like, get out of here. Yeah. Yeah. It's just kind of like, if if you just go, we'll forget about it. And and the cops at that point, like, they were already Mm -hmm. very familiar with us. Um, through like, you know, my friends being runaways and the cops having to come to our house and being like, Hey, your mom wants you to go home or, um, and my, my mom always had a pistol. And so my brother and I, like a few times the cops came cause we were just like fucking around with a yeah. gun in the front yard. Um, and just being it's such a small town and being bad kids, the cops were very familiar. Um, my mom had gotten in a police chase with them and they arrested her one time. Um, so like they, they were, they knew who we were. My mom was very much like, fuck the police. And so that like, they were familiar with her as like, you know, it's just a little woman in a wheelchair that was always being <laughs> rowdy. Sure. And, you know, like she was just a woman in a wheelchair that always had a pistol on her. And anytime the cops would stop her, she would make it so, so dramatic. Like just a ticket for running a stop sign was it got escalated into a, a police chase because she refused to sign the ticket and flipped him off and was like, fuck you. I don't have to do shit. I'm going home. Um, so they, they were familiar with us enough that they, you know, they knew they just wanted us out of their hair. And it seems like that's like a sort of a win for Uh, everybody. They don't have to deal with you anymore. And then your brother doesn't have to, deal with the consequences, the legal ramifications. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So we just, we got um, a U-Haul and we had to buy a new car because the night of the shootout, we wrecked the car twice trying to get away. Um, So we got a new car, we got a U-Haul and uh, we just packed it up. And a couple of our friends actually moved down here with us. Like teens? Uh, teens, Whoa. yeah. Which even like now when I think about it, I'm like, whoa, like my friend Timmy 
who we've known each other since we were five. Oh yeah. Timmy Hefner. Um, yeah, he, when I, when I was in fifth grade, my bedroom and his bedroom windows over, they were just separated by a fence. We were neighbors and we became best friends. And when we were moving down, I think he was probably about 14 and he was like, yeah, I'm going to help him move. And then he just no stayed shit. here. Wow. Yeah. And I like now when I think about it, I was like, whoa, his parents were just like so chill about a 14 year old moving across the country yeah. and live like with us. It's not, it's not even like we were, we were Did you guys, crazy. like, did you go to school in Texas? Did, did they, like. No. Yeah. No. Did you, did you go to school? <laughs> um, I did for about. In Texas. Half a semester. In Texas. Yeah. Um, Cause when. By the time I was in seventh grade, I was already mm-hmm. in an alternative school. Um, and it was in Winchester. It was called First Sorry, Step. Sorry, it cut off a second. And it was step. kind of. Yeah. First Step. Yeah. And it was like a drug rehabilitation type school. Um, we would have to take urine drug tests once a week um, at school. We would go to an AA meeting after lunch every day. Um, And so I did that seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade. Um, Because the beauty of that school is I could still run away and be gone for weeks or months at a time and come back and just pick up with school because that like they would have the curriculum, all your work year would be laid out. So as long as you like took all the tests and did the assignments for that year, you would still get a passing grade. Yeah. So I would stay gone for a month or two and then come back and do like three months worth of work in two weeks. Jesus. That's wild. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then I did um I did a a mail in school for a year as well. That's, like a correspondence is, school. I think people younger than us don't understand like I think generationally we're at an interesting point where like there's been this huge advance in technology that changed literally everything. But I think, and like we have, we live, we lived on both ends of it. I feel like people younger than us don't get how insane it was in the nineties that like you could go to high school through the mail. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I think about it now and I'm like, whoa, it's kind of like anything goes. Yeah. There were like no, no real regulations. And even with like truancies, 
like I was, I would never go to school, even when I was like registered to a normal high school. And nothing ever happened with That's it. That's wild. Yeah, they were never like, where have you been the last two months? Or like, you never got picked up and thrown in juvie or anything for missing school? No, I never went to juvie at all. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I, I... It was... And even like when I went... When I came to Texas and I went to high school for... Maybe I finished a whole year, but I don't, I don't feel like I did a full year. Um, they let me do like a half day work program. Like a, like a vocational kind of thing? So, yeah. Um, so I'd have like two classes in the morning and then my afternoon I was supposed to be working. And, but all I, we, we had our neighbor say that I was a nanny for her kids and instead I would just sit on my mom's couch and sell weed. Okay. That's wise. Yeah. And, but the school never like followed up to see that I was actually working or. Right. I mean, you were actually working, just not, that, not the way they would have, in a way that they would have approved of. And like, mm-hmm. it's definitely more industrious and financially responsible to sell weed than to be a nanny. Well, at that point I, it was, um, just to support my family. Like I wasn't, I would just give all the money to my mom and she was actually like helping me sell. Like she would weigh things out. She had initially fronted me the money for my first pound of weed. Um, and yeah, it was it was just to pay bills and to buy groceries and yeah. so we could have cable and and things yeah, like for that. Sure. Which like a teen but even nan- now I think about it, like my mom being my my mom being a drug dealer essentially to pay rent in high school. Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. At that point, my mom had already retired. And so she was living on like a social security check and um, her little retirement check. But both of those combined, we were still living in poverty. Um, And I grew up on Section 8 housing. Like as a child, I always had free lunches at school. We were just, I I was, we were always in poverty. And... So when I started selling weed in high school was kind of like the first taste of my family having a little bit of security Mm -hmm. Um, and a little bit of like, oh, when we go grocery shopping, we can buy whatever food. Right. It's not like um, uh, limited as much. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that was my high school experience was basically just like kind of being, 
being a drug dealer and not really yeah. going to high school. Um, and I, I did that. I quit going altogether by the time I was Because that's the 16. age when you can legally drop out, right? Yeah. I think so. But uh, there was never even like, it was never even like my mom contacting the school being like, okay, she's withdrawing. She's done. Yeah. I just stopped going and they never followed up. And so then are you just selling weed all day? Like, what are you doing with your time? Um, yeah, I was kind of just like hanging out on my mom's couch with some like Mexican gangbangers and we would just drink forties and sell weed all day. Um, and then I kind of, started hanging out with some like Mm -hmm. train hopper kids. Um, and so I would just, I started just drinking in parks and living under bridges. Um, and would kind of do that for Maybe two months, and then I would go back to my mom's house for a couple weeks. And you're and doing drugs at up. this point, I assume. Yeah, I was, but mainly, yeah, mainly drinking. Um, and I think it was mostly just because mm-hmm. it was what was cheapest. Um, so I was mainly drinking a lot. Um. And are and then, you at this point, because um, like ultimately what I want to talk about is the, like the t-shirts that you make and the art that you make. And so, and like, I, I mm-hmm. want to, I want to get there um, holistically, but like at this point, are you, are you making, are you like a drawing or like doing graffiti or anything like that? Or make, like I know a lot of people that I knew that rode trains like that were like, did a ton of, wrote a ton of graffiti and stuff back then or like. Or did that come later? Um, I did graffiti, but I could never really commit <laughs> to hard. a word. Um, yeah. And so I would just like kind of just write random like. <sighs> yeah, just like punk stuff kind of like fuck the world type things um you know or draw like band logos i've always really loved yeah. band logos and logo logos in general um and like character trademarks have always just been mm-hmm. like really exciting to me so i think that was like the first stuff that i would draw I would just draw band logos everywhere. And so, yeah, I would draw, you know, like punk shirts. um, But it was all just very basic stuff, you know, like a dead Kennedy's logo or a misfit skull. Um, I wasn't really super uh, productive because I, just spent right. so much time like true being wasted. Yeah. Um, 
I, I would go to Dallas. I would go to Houston, to San Antonio for like a couple weeks at a time. Um, and always come back to Austin just cause it's so, it's so easy to live here. Um, as a, like just the city is, it's very, it's very easy to get by here with, without. Yeah. I mean, something that Becca used to say was that like, um, it seems like up until like maybe 10 years ago, the entire economy of Austin was just based on hanging out. Um, and there's mm-hmm. like, obviously we can talk about the changes that have happened in the city of Austin um, at some point, but um, yeah, it seems like back then, especially it was like the cost of living was so cheap and the quality of life was so high that it really did afford a sort of um, opportunity to, to do very little conventionally productive shit and like live pretty decently. I think that's also, it makes it easy to, to be a scum right. fuck and to sleep in a park and, you know, cause if it's 70, 70 degrees, like nine months out of the year, you don't really have to worry about like, right. Freezing or, you know, finding a sleeping bag or having really any sort of shelter. You can kind of just pass out in the dirt and then wake up and right. start over again. And that was your lifestyle. Uh, it was, yeah. Um, and probably around like 17 or so is when I started getting heavily involved with drugs um, and heroin and crack. Um, and that was, that was here in town. Um, but it was also what kind of like pushed me to travel more is cause I would just hear about how much better the drugs were in San oh. Francisco. So I was like, oh. yeah, well, maybe I'll go out there and see what the crack. Um, and that's, that was really like when I was traveling, that was like my destination points were specifically for drugs. Oh, I mean, that's, um, so I, I spent a lot of years kind of like bouncing between Austin and San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, and back here. And it it seems like the <laughs> like sort of path to that is really, is pretty gradual, right? It's not like you were like, one day you were just like, I'm throwing it all away and like running out of society or whatever. You just like kind of very slowly and incrementally were taking steps back from uh, like participating in in civil society, you know? And just like getting into the shit that you were getting into. Well, yeah, I mean, it it was all so gradual, but, you know, even from like my starting point was outside of of the norm. Um, so I've never really had like a good sense of what normalcy looks like anyways. Um, and 
definitely like I can always remember really being intrigued with a, mm-hmm. the CD side of life and always like really romanticizing it and wanting that for my life. Like wanting to know prostitutes and wanting to know convicts and, you know, like gangbangers and stuff. Like that was always yeah. so interesting. What do you think that's me. about? Like, I, don't, I feel like I, I, I don't know. There was like something innate inside me that was like, I want to get, get down and hang out with, um, I like, I try to like get myself into dangerous situations and like kind of push limits and stuff. And I think, and I've thought a lot in adulthood and like, you know, being the person I am today about like what it was that, that brought me to that. And I like, I have so many different sort of theories, but like my childhood was completely different than yours. Like I grew up pretty wealthy in a suburb outside New York city um, with like, you know, just like the, the mild dysfunction of um, two generally loving people, you know, but any parent is, is not going to be perfect. And like, and still, and there's like addicts on both sides of my family. And like my mom's childhood was pretty cutty and she had like a bunch of sort of criminal and borderline criminal brothers. So I've like, I've oftentimes entertained this like genetic or something, which seems crazy, but like that's, that's been something I've always wondered, which is like, aside from just like it, that's what all the cool looking people were doing. <laughs> um, I don't really know what the, like, I can't understand the magnet that pulled me towards like, just like trying fucking drugs and like wanting to know the like gang members in my high school and like, whatever other shit. Um, so it's always interesting to talk to someone else who ha- feels the similar pull or has felt the similar pull and see if, if they have any insight. Well, I know like even with my family, um, pretty much everyone in my family on both sides is, has had issues with alcoholism and drug addiction and they're, like they're everyone's had their like trouble with the law um and it's just nothing like my family really even makes a big deal out of um like i can remember as a child um so i have an aunt sissy and she has two sons ronnie and donnie and Ronnie went to prison for cattle rustling. And so my mom used to go visit Ronnie in, in prison and just all of it seemed sure so normal to me. Um, but now I realize like most people don't have a cousin that's like stealing other people's yeah, cows probably and true. going to prison for it. You know, but my family's just like, oh, yeah, Ronnie's out in jail again for cattle rustling. Like, no big yeah, deal. He'll be out in a couple years. And so what is the um, sort of, I mean, we've talked before about the 
sort of circumstances surrounding your like uh, ultimately leaving that lifestyle. Um, and I don't know if that's something you want to talk about mm -hmm. in this context. Um, no, no, that I, I'm, I, I'll talk about it. Um, so I think, well, like right now I have, uh, mm -hmm. eight and a half years sober and I do smoke weed every day, but I live an honest life. I, it's eight and a half years without drinking, without yeah. smoking crack and without shooting heroin. Um, and I feel great about that. I, I feel, yeah. And I think like, I feel like I'm sober. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just another, uh, garden variety drunk or whatever the language they use in the program is. But like, I, mm -hmm. I, and I like, I, you know, I do 12 step stuff. Um, that I actually didn't even start till I was year sober in Austin, but I, um, I've always, and maybe it's just like the anarchist or the punk in me. Um, I've always found the like prescriptive nature of some 12 step fellowships to be really dangerous to people's health. And I think there is like, if you feel like you are happy and healthy and productive and you are not doing like truly damaging things to yourself and you smoke weed every day for what it's worth, I think that fucking rules. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think I can still yeah. live an honest life and and be stoned. Um, you know, I'm I I try to treat people decently, um, and you know, I just try to try to do the right thing. Um, and I don't think weed has anything to do with that, but. Um, so, uh, I always really struggled with 12 step programs. Um, when my first experience with it was when I went, when I was 13 yeah. or 14 and, and was in first step alternative school and we would have to go to an AA meeting every day. And just the wording of the the wording enough was enough to make me be like no yeah. this it's just not for me um and the, i think a lot of it was just you know being young and being punk and being like yeah i also think like i'm not a square. you know like i will argue forever about the efficacy of AA and like 12 step style recovery for the people that it works for. But I think like it's never going to work for someone who's being forced into it, like being mandated to AA like that, like the whole premise right. of how the 12 steps work is about consent. Like you can't, the first step is consenting to the program. And if you're being forced by court or by like your um, alternative school to participate that's not consent, it's coercion. And so it's, it's like, just, it's, it's not, that's not how it's never going like, to, I mean, I won't say never. I'm sure some people, I know many people who got sober because they were forced to, but um, I think that causes a lot of the grief and anxiety that 
And I think ultimately, like, the damage that 12 steps can cause to some people's lives is caused by the fact that they are, like, there's not really a choice there. Yeah. Well, I was definitely forced, um, forced into it. My first, probably like six or seven times going to rehab. Um, it was either like through my mom or mm -hmm. through judges. Um, cause once I was about 17, I started getting into legal trouble. And so I would, the judge would, I would make a plea and say I would go to rehab and for lesser charges. Um, so that was never really, I never had right. any intentions of getting sober. Um, and also for the longest time, I just, I never yeah. thought being sober was cool. Um, and, and I think like a lot of it was just my experience with straight edge kids. Dude. Like, oh, you guys are such assholes. Um, and that was like my only experience mm -hmm. in how to be a punk and be sober. Is it like if, to be sober and be a punk, you have to be straight edge and you have to be like, or you're like just some weird bully belief. like uh, Lars from Rancid. Neither of which I would yeah. ever wanted anything to do with. And no, and I'm just like it's it's not cool. Yeah. and I wanted to be cool. And I mean, I I think even like really, if I get down to it, like that's probably a lot of where my drug addiction like really jumped off is just wanting like always feeling very alone and like I didn't fit in with anyone even in in the punk scene I felt like I didn't necessarily belong and so with drug addicts it's very easy to feel like you're bonded and like you're connected and part of something if you're yeah. like and like the nature of so many relationships in that world is so ephemeral that like it does it you are connected and bonded to that person it's just not in, in like a like a lasting or long-term way necessarily right and so i, I think like you know, I just, I just wanted to, I wanted to feel part of something. I wanted to feel cool. And in my mind, like doing drugs was cool and being like wild and crazy was cool. So in turn, like being sober right. is definitely not cool. And it took me like a lot of years and a lot of just like really being a full-on drug addict, like living on the streets and seeing mm -hmm. the reality of it and seeing what it's done to my life and to my mental health. Um, 
before I realized like, oh, there's really nothing cool about being a junkie. There's nothing like romantic about being strung out on heroin. Um, so once I kind of like got to the point where I realized like, it's not cool to be a 35 year old crackhead. That was honestly like kind of what yeah. made me get sober. Uh, is just thinking like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of too old to be doing this. And it's not a cool look. Yeah. Anymore. I mean, I think, you know, one of the, one of the like sort of final, or I don't know, like it's just sort of a galvanizing moment in my life where I was like, Ooh, maybe I need to like change sort of the path that I'm on. I was like with a friend of mine that I used to just like, kind of run around and party with. And we we're in New York in Brooklyn on Broadway. We were talking about the like kind of, we were getting to our late twenties, I think, and talking about like this sort of Peter Pan type elements of um, just like punk as a subculture and the like wild and free, no parents sort of shit and how that like, maybe, maybe it was like, maybe we were mm -hmm. old enough to not be so stoked about that kind of no rules situation anymore. And then we passed like a, a home bum, you know, just like a, uh, just like a guy pushing a cart, you know, it's like a scrag scraggly old beard and no judgment, obviously about anyone's lifestyle. And, but like, you know, that definitely was like a step past the sort of, uh, like cool and romantic and like tight looking, street kid style of some of our friends you know and we pat we walked past this guy and as we were passing ah. him we realized that he was like this dude we had ridden trains with uh who was our age and he looked like 50 wow. you, you know and it was like as as dumb as it is i was yeah. just like i don't want to look 50 like i'm only 27 i don't want to look 50 yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, I that it sounds so so lame to say that like that's what made me get sober. It's not that like right. like obviously drugs hadn't really been fun for a long time. Um and it was very taxing to like always have to work for yeah. to just never be able to rest it's like a, a non-stop like you're always thinking about how are you going to make the next hundred dollars um you know and and i'd spent a lot of years going to rehabs and being on methadone and i'd went to prison for a couple years and um had moved out of the country and, and went and lived in Germany for a couple of years and like done all these things, like having little bits of sobriety that weren't mm -hmm. of my choosing. Um, and so like, even though, I, you know, I had two years sober in prison, it never really felt 
it wasn't my choice. Um, so the second right. I got out, I immediately went back to it. Because, uh, you know, and it, it still just had an allure. And I still thought, like, maybe this is, like, the lifestyle for me. Um, and then, yeah, this, this last time I got sober, um, I mean, and this is kind of also going to sound lame. I wasn't really going to bring, bring this into it, but the thing I was dating a guy, um, that the way that I met him is an ex-boyfriend brought him to my house so they could sell me crack. And so I ended up dating this guy and we were both strung out. And then he went to jail and was in jail for about six months and was about to get out and would be on probation. And so I knew that if he got out on his probation and I wasn't sober, that he would immediately relapse. And I, I really think I just got sober because I wanted this guy in my life. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to be the reason that he went back to jail. Um, so it wasn't really even like for myself, I don't think, I mean, I think kind like, of, but not and fully. I, obviously this is not something I can know, but like as someone who, um, for so much of my life, I had to find, I, I didn't think that I was worth, um, any, any effort and that like I was worth, um, like I didn't think I deserved to be respected or valued by anyone, let alone myself. Um, I think like I had to find reasons that were outside of me to make decisions that on some level I knew I had to make for myself, if that makes sense. And so like the, yeah, like I, I do believe pretty firmly didn't want to be sober no matter how much you wanted to be sober for your boyfriend at the time, like that's not going to, it's not going to stick, you know? And like, right. I understand why it like feels like it's like, um, like if, if you feel self-conscious saying like, Oh, I, you know, I did this just for this dude or whatever. But like, I think ultimately with stuff like that, it's just like, I mean, like I got, I got bullied into quitting drinking by someone I was dating. Uh, and it like ultimately kind of sucked like that, the relationship and then it ended and, and now I'm still, I'm still sober and it doesn't really matter that like the circumstances are like less than ideal or yep. like, you know, whatever, like it's, it's, that is still, that's a gift that person gave me. Um, that I will always be grateful for, even if like the sort of rest of that is, is something that I feel a lot of conflict around. Well, that, I mean, that relationship, um, I mean, 
I, I've never really had like a healthy relationship, but that was the closest mm-hmm. I've had to like a healthy relationship in regards to the amount of encouragement and support that I received and the amount of personal growth I was able to achieve through yeah, just having somebody else believe in me. Um, and I'd never really had that. Um, and so, yeah, we, I mean, I got sober for someone else. Um, and we did, we both, we went to meetings. Um, I definitely worked my steps, um, and really got into going to CA and being active in it for Mm -hmm. maybe the first two years of my sobriety. And then, um, I don't know. I just felt like I didn't necessarily need it. And I know, I know that like part of it is just being there and, and being there for like the next person that's trying to get sober. It's okay. Um, yeah, I kind of just needed to figure out how to live my life and be productive and be happy and healthy without having to feel like I need to constantly check in <clears throat> with people. Um, Cause I, I just don't like to explain myself. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, I do know that makes so much sense. I, I hate it. I hate having to be like, this is what I'm doing and this is how I'm feeling. And I just don't want to do it. Um, And I'm kind of a brat like that, that I just want to do things on my own. And I recognize that a lot of times I make it harder on myself. And by my refusal to ask for help and just being like, I'm just going to figure it out on my own and figure out what works for me. Um, And so that's kind of what I had to do. Um, and it's worked. Yeah. Um, and it got to a point where even with that relationship that there was probably the, the most difficult thing I've had to do in my life was to leave that relationship. And it was maybe the first time ever in my life that I've put myself before my partner. Yeah. That's huge. Um, yeah. And, and it took me like what he, he had slipped up and had been relapsing. And I found like dirty cottons in our bathroom um, and foils in our bathroom. And I was just like, okay, well, I know what this is. I know what you're doing. Like you either have to like stop or I have to go. And so it basically came down to like 
me, I, I moved out and left that relationship, not because I didn't love him, but just because I knew if I stayed in it, that I couldn't stay sober. Mm -hmm. And it, it's kind of like wild to me now when I think about it, because I don't necessarily see myself as being like a strong person. Um, but just that one thing of being like, okay, well, I guess I'm just going to have to like go and figure it out. Like, leave this relationship with somebody that I care about because I care about myself a little bit more. You know, I do think that there's this, this gulf in perception that we have sometimes between the kind of person that we are that like we think we are and the kind of person we actually are based on the things do. Right. And so like walking away from that relationship because you needed to, that is, that is actually something that a strong person does, you know, like even if you don't feel like a strong person. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I, I definitely didn't feel strong. I mean, I, I took two weeks off work because I couldn't stop crying. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and just kind of like, I mean, I isolated for a really long time and just felt like, like questioned if I had made the right decision and question like, you know, even like maybe I should just stick it out because maybe I won't find anyone as good as him again. Um, and it took a long time for me to realize like that I don't need anyone to feel good about myself. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's all really been, I mean, it really sucks to say, but I'm grateful that he relapsed and that I had to leave. Cause otherwise like, like where I'm at now after, you know, three years later, I'm a much like I have a better sense of myself and I feel stronger and just that like, okay, I'm actually able to support myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and to just like navigate the world as a single person. Um, and I'd never, I'd never in my life been single. I'd never lived alone. Um, and so now just having like being forced to be single through, you know, just heartbreak. Yeah. Um, and spending the time to really like figure out what makes me happy and what I want, how I want to spend my time. Um, I'd know had, had he not relapsed, I would have never had this time to myself. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I definitely like, even 
with the shirts. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have put so much work and time into these shirts if I was in a relationship. Right. Because it's like, you got other stuff to do in a relationship than spend yeah. hours poking dots onto a t-shirt. Right. Um, you know, so it's like, I think about it and like all these different things that felt so difficult and so painful at the time. And like now I'm, I, I'm so grateful for it. Yeah. And this is a good, I think this is a good way to sort of move the conversation on to the um, sort of like Marissa as a creator of things, you know, past mm-hmm. the biography. And I think, I think of you, when I think of like th- things that you make, I think of you, you know, primarily as um, someone that makes clothing and like specifically those shirts. Uh, and we will talk about mm-hmm. those in a second. But I also think of you as a photographer um, in like clearly an amateur and like kind of punkish sort of zine way. But, uh-huh. but you know, like your personal Instagram, you, you just like, it seems like even at sober, uh, you are still very interested in the seedier side of life and like hanging, like just like chit chatting with uh, like criminals and sort of the dregs of society. I say with zero judgment or um, pejorative implications. Um, yeah. It's like people that have been cast out in a lot of ways. Um, and you're always just like posting pictures of like gnarly dudes showing off their tattoos to you or like, uh, like a story that they, that like some guy you were chatting up on the street told you like or at a bus station or something. And I think there's something really, there's a way that I, that kind of like documentary photography of like the sort of underbelly of America or whatever, can sometimes feel like really exploitative. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's like, there's like a, like a love and a compassion in the composition of your pictures, as well as in the, um, the way that you discuss them and frame them in, in like the short writing that you do about, about your photos that I think is really admirable. And I, I think, I don't know if you think of yourself as, as like a documentary photographer or if that's just something you do, but I, I want you to know that I think of you that way and that I think that that shit is really cool. Oh, that means that really means a lot. Um, I, I don't really, I've never really thought of myself in terms of being like a photographer or even like, I, I struggle to even call myself an artist. And I think a lot of it is just self doubt. Um, and the fact that like, I, my day job, I, I'm an assistant for artists. Right. You work in a tattoo shop. Correct. Yeah. And the artists that I work for, I've I've worked at the shop for about six years. Um, And so I watch them draw. And I know that that's just not the same type of artist I am. Right. Um, And the way that their minds work and just the things that they're able to create. It's we're not the same. And so I struggled to be like, Oh yeah, I'm an artist. I make some Sharpie t-shirts. Um, 
And so I've never, I've never, I've definitely never like, I, I don't make like a conscious thing to like take photographs all the time. It's just, it's like a, I can't help but to take photos all the time. Yeah. And like, like my camera roll on my phone is like 20,000 photos deep. And the majority is just like random signage mm-hmm. um, or like civilian graffiti or, or yeah, I have a bunch of photographs of homeless men showing me their tattoos. Yeah. Um, and it just doesn't seem voyeuristic like the, and that, and that I think is something that differentiates your uh work that from like um like a like a larry clark or something you know who's like a sort of well-known photographer of the sort of sort of you know the cd underbelly or whatever where like no matter how much he was doing drugs or partying or whatever like hanging around with these people it always felt like he was a like he was an interloper like he was there he was a a fucking sociologist, you know what I mean? Or an uh, an anthropologist is the word. Uh, He was there like doing an ethnography. Um, Whereas it, you know, I think that the poses or whatever that you get, which I think that that makes it seem a lot more deliberate than it is, but like, because you sort of build this intimacy with the people that you are just like chatting with on the street and taking a picture of their like fucking full, calf sleeve of Grateful Dead stick and pokes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that they, the way that they are, the way that you are framing the pictures, the way that they are interacting with your camera lens, it, the intimacy is palpable. Right. Um, and I think that makes the photos really powerful. Oh, thank you. Um, I, I tried not to, um, I try to be mindful and I, I'm always, I never want somebody to feel like I'm exploiting somebody else. Mm-hmm. Like just so I can get some likes. Yeah. Uh, and, or that like, or that I'm having these interactions with strangers specifically so I can create content. Um, because it's not about like, I'm not like trying to m- always have content. Right. I mean, this, this is a relatively contemporary problem. And I feel like if my sense is that if, if we were just like to get in the fucking back to the future car or whatever, and like sober Marissa was in 1994 again, um, <laughs> like without an iPhone, you would probably still be, talking to all these people. Oh, definitely. You know what I mean? And I think yeah. that's one of the big differences is that like, it's clear that you're not doing it to create content that like the, you're like in the world experiencing the world and then sharing your experiences. But that is not, um, it is not driven from like a consumer kind of perspective. Yeah. Well, and like pe- people can't tell because obviously this is all just voice recordings, but I'm pretty heavily tattooed. Yeah. I mean, there'll be a picture of you accompanying the, the interview. So they'll see. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty murdered out. Um, and so it's, it's a thing that pretty much anywhere I go, even to like the bodega or just walking around my neighborhood every day, I get comments from strangers that are just like, Oh, nice tats, nice tats. So the, anytime I photograph someone else's tattoos, it's generally because they've approached me mm-hmm. and like said, Hey, sick tats. And then at that point I'm like, Oh, well, would you mind showing me yours? And the thing I've learned is like, once people start, if you show interest in someone and they can see that it's like genuine, it makes people so excited to share themselves. Yeah. I mean, that's like the premise of this podcast in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so that it's like that's really the only tattoos that I see on the streets that really excite me are like and the so, sort of non conventional or like scrappy right. ones. Uh huh. Yeah, and so it's usually like a lot of times it's just a guy that's like flying a sign at a stop sign, and I always drive with my windows down. So. And I'm usually smoking a cigarette. So people approach me all the time to be like, hey, can I get a cigarette? And then I'll be like, oh, well, yeah, but can I see your tattoos? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, it really, it doesn't take a lot to get people to want to share, you know, Cause I'll, it, you can tell if something's done in prison. Yeah. Um, but I generally will just ask like, Oh, how old is that? Or when did you get that? And people will generally tell me like, Oh, I got that in TDC in 1997. It was done by a single guitar string, uh, over the course of two weeks. And it's, I think it's, there's something about it that just makes me incredibly happy and incredibly sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because um, I think a lot of times people that um, are homeless or ex-convicts or just trying to like trying to survive the world yeah a lot of times they're overlooked and that um no one really shows like a genuine interest and so it makes me a little bit sad when i'll ask someone and just to see how excited they get Mm -hmm. to tell me everything and people will like take their shirts off and you know like people are just so happy to take me on a journey of all their tattoos yeah i'm fortunate in the sense that i can talk to just about anyone 
um, and not feel like I, I'm, I always have like a, a certain amount of like uncomfortableness within mm -hmm. me. Um, but I, I'm not scared to talk to people and I'm not like, like it, it's very comfortable for me to have a conversation with a random man at a stop sign. Yeah. Um, like it doesn't ever, I never feel like nervous or scared. Um, and I think that's something that people also pick up. Yeah, on. for sure. And that if they can, if they see that you're not scared of them and that you can just be like, whoa, hey, how are you? Like, can, you, can I take a look at your tats? As a, and just be like a normal person to them. Then these guys, it, then they're not scary people. Right. I mean, it's wild. Or like, um, it's not at all wild. I was saying that sarcastically, but it's sometimes hard to read sarcasm without, <gasps> um, you know, seeing seeing me gesticulate. But like, it's <gasps> you know, it's it's truly so logical that when you treat someone like a normal person, they will act like a normal person. Right. And it is wild that more people don't understand that, like, a lot of the bad vibes they get in the world are bad vibes they're putting out. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, for me, it's so easy just, just to be like, normal like to just treat everyone like they're a regular normal human and not like i mean I, I, there's like um some encampments of about a block from my house so i see like hobos still almost like every day um and that we're almost like at a familiar point now that we kind of wave like hi good morning how are you um but it's like I forget that most people just kind of ignore that whole sect of society yeah. and like I forget that most people like won't make eye contact mm -hmm with a homeless man under a bridge. Yeah. Um, so I think like, just like the smallest amount of it. I don't even think it's like compassion or decency. It's just like the smallest amount of just treating someone like a normal human is enough to like put a stranger at ease that they feel like they know you. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, I couldn't have said it better. Um, and I think I do, I definitely want to, don't want to end this conversation before we talk about um, these incredible shirts that you make, which I think are sort of the like, 
the impetus for my suggesting this interview in the first place. Um, so you draw these Sharpie shirts that I think I'll like maybe include like a little, like three of examples after like to scroll through or in the social media or whatever. And I'll link obviously to everything um, in like all the notes on the show and stuff. But like all of your imagery seems to share um, an anti-authoritarian sentiment in from a variety of sort of sub and countercultures, whether that's like gangbanging, hardcore, anarcho-punk, like chola street shit, or, um, you know, like prison tattoo imagery or whatever. Right. Um, it seems like you pull from a lot of places, but the, the unifying theme seems to be this sense of like, um, like a kind of bratty, like, uh, like you can't tell me what to do flipping the bird kind of attitude. Well, does that feel accurate or am, am I, it, no, it's it's accurate because um, it's uh, it's so <clears throat> true to who I am. Yeah, um, and that's what that's what I've tried to do with the shirts, and it, it's the same with like my personal social media. I try to just stay to what I know. So. Even if, like, people ask me to make a shirt that is, like, referencing a certain song that maybe I'm not, like, super familiar with, I know that I, I know enough about, like, trademark characters and fonts and just different subcultures that I can kind of figure out imagery that works together in my head to get a certain vibe across mm -hmm. where, um, you know, and, and I think like, I, I hate using the term juxtaposition when talking about arcs. I feel like it's, it's just so, it's such a pedestrian thing to say. And I feel like even just saying like, Oh, that's so pedestrian. Um, but just having that juxtaposition between like, okay, here's like a dystopia lo logo with some cherubs. Uh-huh. Um, but it feels right to me because that's very much who I am. Um, and I'm always kind of like <clears throat> searching for this balance in life. So like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a vegan, but I smoke a lot of Newports and it's kind of like the same thing. Like I'm always just trying to find a balance between everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I feel like that's kind of like a lot of these shirts. It's just me working out balance. Yeah. Wow. And like, you started doing this. When did you start making these shirts? Um, these ones, I mean, obviously, like as a teenager, I, I would make some shitty shirts. Um, but these that I've like really starting kind of like focusing, um, maybe about two and a half years now. Yeah. But definitely 
during quarantine is when I've really started dedicating like maybe like 30 or 40 hours a week to shirts. Whoa. Yeah. Um, and that was like partly out of necessity and just that, um, the tattoo shop was closed. Right. Right. And I don't, I don't qualify for unemployment, but even beyond that, um, my pride and my anti-government stance, it, it won't allow me like I, I can't bring myself to apply for unemployment Whoa. or I, I couldn't bring myself to apply for the stimulus check just on principle that I want to be an independent self-reliant human and I fucking hate the government. So why would I ask them for help instead of just working harder and doing it for myself? So that was kind of like during quarantine that I was like, oh shit, I need to come up with a thousand dollars a month so I can pay rent. Let me like really hustle these shirts and try to make it happen. Um, so definitely these last like six months, seven months, however long mm-hmm. it's been um, of COVID is I've, I've really been like pretty much making it a full-time job. Yeah. And it seems like the, um, the like net, of who is aware of what you do and that like sort of how, like what you are capable of in terms of like what um, visual uh, subcultural references you're like fluent in and can, can reference in um, like funny or charming or cool ways uh, is getting wider and wider. And so there's like um, just more and more, like we were joking about straight edge before, but the other like what last week or something you made that like youth crew mm-hmm. t-shirt for the, the joint custody people in DC. Yeah. And it's like, you don't have to like straight edge people or whatever historically to, to really know that imagery and be able to, to work, to make, to do cool work about it, you know? And I think it's just like, it's been really, it's been really fascinating or um, I don't know. Fascinating seems like a, fatuous word choice it's just been like it's been cool because i like you to see other people become familiar with your work and who you are and what you do and it's um it's been really wild just watching this this thing grow it's been really wild for me um and just how fast it's kind of taken off in the requests that i'm getting and uh just like the types of people, like different people that are hitting me up to do collaborations um, are different artists that want to do trades. And it's still like, it's just hard for me to like really believe that it's all happening. 
Um, Cause still in my head, like I, I still don't think I'm a cool person and I'm still like really unsure of myself and super filled with self doubt that a lot, like almost every shirt I make, I'm like, Oh fuck. I don't know if I can do this. And I get so intimidated by ideas and like wanting things to look a certain way, but not knowing if I have the technical ability to execute it. Um, and so it's been like really wild for me to see that I'm, I've been able to execute things that I thought were impossible for my level of skill. Yeah. I mean, obviously you wouldn't, there's like a learning curve and you wouldn't put anything on line that you didn't feel confident about, but like the, the huge um, range of imagery that you have been able to duplicate is um, with like, just like um, while remaining completely true to the originals is incredible. Like from, uh, from like a Garfield, like a, just a Garfield, like you did the pointillism to, I'm like just scrolling through the page now, like the pointillism um, or like, you know, like the kind of newspaper screen Mm -hmm. um, dot coloring for a Garfield that looks just accurate to like, um, like a very elaborate uh, Tom of Finland scene to like, uh, like graffiti and bricks, the metal logos. Like it's just, it's all over the place and you have not fucked anything up to this Cocteau twin shirt, which has like a wild font and like some old etching style clip art of a lady dancing. Like it's just, it's all Uh over the map and it's, and it's, it's amazing. Thank you. Um, how long does it, it take usually to make a shirt? Um, it kind of really varies on, um, sometimes I will spend a week drawing the same thing. Um, and I, I, sometimes I'll show people my process cause I'll just have scraps of paper with the same lettering 200 times. <laughs> wow. With with just the slightest little changes in each one. And it's just so I can show people like, look, it it took me a long time to get this to where I thought it looked right. Um so sometimes it might take me a week or two weeks to get a sketch together, but then the shirt itself I can make in four hours. Whoa, that's wild. But then some of the shirts will be like 12 hours of work, Mm -hmm. but I'll just do it straight from stuff that I've printed off of Google. And I've recently started doing a thing because I always did line drawings before. And I've started doing a thing with a few of the shirts, like the Bauhaus shirt. um, And then I'm doing a couple other ones where I just printed something off Google and then 
blew it up on a copier like 400 percent and then just went straight off of that and you know that it's it's just really i'm just trying different things and trying to see what kind of works the best um i'm not good at time management at all so sometimes a shirt might take me three months before I finish. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, you you work. Like, this is not your full-time job. So, of course, you can't just spend... And, like, you ha- you deserve to have a life besides being in a tattoo shop and, and making T-shirts for people on the internet. Right. Well, lately, like, and, and I'm so... I'm so fueled by guilt. Um, and I think a lot of that's just from my my upbringing and my mom loves to guilt trip me into it's like her way of motivating me to do things. Um, so now I guilt trip myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'll go work at the tattoo shop for nine hours and I'll try to work my hardest and do my best there. And then I'll come home and spend like an hour decompressing But then usually around an hour is when I start feeling guilty for like hugging my cat because I know I should be doing a shirt. So I'm just kind of like always, always pushing myself to do these shirts because I feel bad knowing that I've agreed to to do something and making someone wait for it even though they understand that waiting is part of the right. process. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's also part of why I work on them nonstop is not necessarily that other people are pressuring me. It's just my, my own yeah. mental thing. Yeah. I get that. Do you have a favorite shirt that you've made? Um, that's gotta be really hard. Yeah, that is really hard. Um, I made some filth shirts for my friend Hillary and I, and I really, really like those a lot. Um, I like the Tama Finland ones I've been doing. I think those... I feel really, um, I feel a sense of pride about being able to execute those. Um, it's kind of hard because honestly, I forget about yeah, for them sure. the second I, um, sometimes I'll like scroll through my Instagram and be like, oh yeah, I have been kind of busy. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I have done a few things. Um, Yeah, usually ones I make for friends, honestly, are are the ones that I like the most. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Uh And then you also have like a little, I don't know if you're still doing this, but for a a time you were taking orders to bring to the the airbrush guy at like a swap meet. Right, yeah. That's just like Um, some dude that you met, right? Um, yeah, like I, I honestly, like I, we didn't 
know each other. We didn't have a relationship before I started taking orders out. And I had never even discussed it with him <laughs> before I did it. Um, and even, I don't think I even mentioned anything about it, about why I was doing it or what I was doing for maybe the first like three weeks until somebody else told him what I was doing. Um, but basically there's a Mexican flea market um, and they were struggling to stay open just due to COVID and people not being able to pay booth rentals um, and not a lot of people going out. So there was like a few community posts that people were just like, yo, if you have, you know, some extra money, go out to the flea market and like, you know, buy a plant or whatever um, and help keep this thing going. And so I knew, I knew there was a guy that did airbrush shirts because I had bought a few from him in the past. And in my mind, it just seemed like a no brainer mm -hmm. that I have a shirt profile. So obviously anybody that follows my shirt page, they like t-shirts. Um, so I was just like, Oh, I'll make a post and see if this is something that people would be interested in. And I would end up taking out like maybe 30 or 40 shirts a weekend he would make for me. Um, or, you know, not right. for me, but for people that had ordered. Um, yeah. And it, I, I really, I felt good about it, even though every week I would be so annoyed and be like, this is, I'm not doing this ever again. <laughs> time, like having to explain to people through DMs like what a flea market airbrush guy is like no like you're gonna pick a number off the wall and that's the shirt you get like don't send me some like obscure anime reference for me to show this guy who's like English second language and 50 years old like I'm not gonna take all these like weird custom orders to this guy right. there's like a set number of images and then you can make them say a bunch of funny stuff you could they can say literally yeah. anything he'll write anything and you know so i would like go through all this back and forth and like my niece had sent up set up like a google docs to try to like make to streamline it um because i hate i hate when people ask me questions that I feel like Google could answer for them. Uh -huh. um, and I hate having to like explain something that I feel like is very common. Um, so either way, like I, I was every weekend, I'd be like, I'm never doing this again. It's so annoying. These people are driving me crazy with their questions. And then I would get out there and like, see his face and see his wife's face and their grandson would be out there with them. And then I was like, okay, 
this is why I'm doing it. Like I'll keep doing it to help these people survive. Um, and eventually I did have a conversation with them and tell them like, yo, like I'm not, I'm not like reselling these. I'm just like taking orders and you're getting the money. And, you know, I kind of explained it. I showed them my shirt page and I was like, yo, this is why I'm doing it. I just, I love shirts and I love the flea market and I don't want, I don't want the flea. I, I didn't want to see something that I love disappear without me doing something to help yeah, preserve it. That's beautiful. Um, and so I felt like, oh, it's it's a no brainer that I just this is a thing that I have to do. Um, but I haven't been able to do it recently because I work my day job on yeah. Saturdays. Such is life. You know, I mean, like, you do what you can while you can. And it makes a difference. Yeah. It makes the difference that it makes. And it's not, it's like, I think, you know, whatever. This is like a whole another hours long conversation. But like, capitalism tricks us into thinking that we are personally responsible for keeping the flea market open or whatever. And like, right. We're not. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. It does mean that if you try and then like something comes up and you have to stop trying, like you don't need to feel it's not like it's not on you, you know, like it's on our entire culture that exists to um, make people fucking poor and miserable. Yeah. Well, I think like the thing my mom always used to tell me when I was growing up is and she had it like printed out and like taped to our refrigerator um, is the quote, no individual raindrop considers itself responsible for the flood. Mm-hmm. And my mom was like, always kind of like, you know, you don't like, you might not think you're doing anything cause you're just like one person doing one thing. And however small it may feel, it has some impact. Um, and so that's still kind of like how I go about my life is like, I, I don't, I'm not trying to like make some massive impact in the world, but I know that there's small things I can do on a daily basis that will impact even one person's life. And that's enough Mm -hmm. for me. Um, to feel, to feel like I'm doing something and not just like living my whole life to fulfill my own needs. Back from the pub. 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 Back
Banned from the pubs. Banned from the pubs. In my early sobriety, and I think still now, it it has it is instrumental uh, to hear other people talk about what's going on with them uh, and and what they've been through and what um, and how they're coping. It's really I cannot overemphasize how important that is um, to my health and and how valuable I think the time that Marissa spent being willing to talk about that stuff is. And I just think like fucking man, she's just so cool. You know what I mean? Marissa, my friend, she's so cool. I'm glad you got to listen. And um, I think that's it. Thanks as usual to the guest. Thank you to La Cara Occulta for recording the theme song. Uh, this is filth covering Peter and the test two babies banned from the pubs. Uh, Life Harvester Radio is a production of me and my cat, my dogs, and my girlfriend. Um, fuck ice, free Palestine, no cops, no creeps, peace in the pizzeria, Harvester out.